Well, welcome. If you happen to be visiting with us today, we want to extend you a special welcome. And uh, we are glad you're, you've joined us for worship. We're glad you're here with us today. And um, today, like last week, our, our message and what we're going to cover is, is a bit different than what we, we normally do. Typically, our pattern is to walk through a text of Scripture and uh, look at it closely. And we're, we're doing something a little bit different right now as we, um, as we go through this series we're calling Story. And we've been uh, last week we talked about God's story, and we looked at the kind of from Genesis on through uh, the story of redemption, which began even before the universe was created and now continues to unfold even to this very day. If you're his child, then you are swept up, you are caught up into this narrative of God's saving purposes. This means that you and your own individual story matters before Almighty God because you matter to him. He formed you. He made you in His image, specifically to be a part of this beautiful and true saga. We're talking about story because it's, it, it's the grand narrative of God's unfolding plan of redemption. And sometimes it's easy to lose track of where we are. If you've ever read a, a poorly written book that didn't seem to be going anywhere or watched a movie that had rabbit trails or even listened to a sermon that didn't seem to have any general direction, just kind of wandered about, you know the frustration of not getting to the point, of not being focused. But, uh, and, and life can feel like that sometimes. It's easy to lose our way. But God's not like us. He stays on task always. His story does not branch off in, with meaningless rabbit trails. Ephesians 1.11 tells us this, In Him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. God is using everything in your story to, to shape His, his plan. There's no accidents, there's no, there's no uh, unexpected plot twists for God. When we know that we're situated in the middle of the plan of the sovereign God of the universe, it completely changes how we look at trials and unexpected bumps in the road. When it comes to the church then, the church is God's community of believers. It's, it's really the intersection of all of our individual stories as we gather together from all kinds of different walks of life. Even if, even if every single person in this room grew up in Clare County, which many, maybe if not most of us did, there still is, there still is a, a, a wide spectrum of experiences that we, we bring to the table. We're all unique. We're all made uniquely in the image of God. And so I, I kind of created this little graphic to kind of illustrate it. And we're, we're caught up into God's story. We have, you have your story, and the person sitting next to you has their story. And as they overlap, that's really the, that's, that's the church. Our, our stories intersecting with one another. And what I want to get to, and my whole hope in, in this few weeks on this topic, is to help us see that as we come together and as our stories intersect, what that is going to take is us being real and being vulnerable with one another. If nobody knows the, the true you, it's hard to have genuine fellowship. We must have the ability, the God-given strength, to take the masks off, to let our guards down, to be real, 
Be vulnerable with one another. True community requires vulnerability. And I decided if I'm going to preach it, then I should be the one to get it started. They tell you in seminary preaching classes not to talk too much about yourself, which is generally good advice. You're here to point to Jesus. You're here to talk about God's Word. But I want to do a little bit by way of biography this morning, because I think it speaks into what I'm trying to encourage each of us to do. I just want to tell you a little bit of the journey that I've been on, especially over the last nine or ten years. I don't know if I have a name for it. Maybe the best way of kind of putting words to it is maybe the journey to find my heart. I grew up in a Christian home, and some of this I've, you've picked up from different messages, so there will be parts of this that you've heard before, but I don't think I've ever shared all these things in connection. I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, my parents uh, took us to church from day one. I had a good home, and we grew up with uh, the Word of God always at the forefront, and church activities uh, always took precedence over the other stuff that came along our way and all the other busyness of uh, having kids. Anything from Awana clubs on Wednesday nights, prayer meetings, uh, was a part of a Bible quiz team for a few years at our church, going on missions trips. Uh, uh, from a young age, I knew that God had, had called me into ministry, and God had, uh, God had, had just spoken that to my heart. I couldn't have put words to it, but I always just had this, uh, this gravitation when we had missionary speakers or, or, or pastors begin to kind of get a little bit autobiographical. I was always drawn to that and drawn in to the, the, the ministry that God had laid on their hearts. And I knew that God was, was calling me into that as well. But one of the things um, that I began to pick up, and, and I'll explain why in a moment, was a real spirit of legalism. I had learned early on that you could impress religious people with religious stuff. And people were especially impressed with religious kids and teenagers because you weren't doing the stuff that they expected kids and teenagers to be doing. And so I, I realized that I really liked that attention. I liked the pats on the back, the approving looks from other people in the pew and even the pastor and the, the leaders of the church. I quite enjoyed that. And so I made sure people saw my religion. They saw my, my uh, Christianity. I made sure that it was, it was visible for everybody to see. And all the while I could have a mask on. Outwardly, I, I looked like I had it together. I shared this once before, I, I think, but I still remember, I think one of the, as I look back, this is just kind of illustrative of my spiritual life at that point. I, I can't remember how old I was, but I, I wasn't a teenager yet, I know that. And we were at Wednesday night Bible study, Wednesday night prayer meeting, and for whatever reason, we didn't have any youth activities that night, so I was with my mom and I think mostly adults in this small circle in the old sanctuary at Lakewood Baptist Church. And uh, we were going around the circle saying things that we were thankful for. And I was, it was coming closer and closer to me, and I was trying, I actually remember thinking this, what can I say that will impress people the most? This was going through my young mind. What will, what will get me nods of affirmation? And I, I came up with it just before it was my turn, and I knew this was a dandy and in the most pious sounding voice I could think of, I said, I am thankful for my parents' discipline. 
It was complete baloney. I was a kid. I wasn't thankful for I hated spankings. I hated getting disciplined. Are you kidding me? But I knew it's what, what sounded good. And there were all kinds of amens around the, the circle and people looking at my mom approvingly like, this is, this is what you have created. Look at this. You're amazing. And my Christian life was like that. And I, I remember the first time that it really dawned on me that something was off, that I had created this facade, this mask, and I didn't know anything that was behind it, but it was when my grandmother died. And I was, uh, it was April of 1998, I was a, it was just, just before I graduated from high school. And um, I remember standing in the funeral home and... Um, and it was during the viewing, and there were just there were a lot of people. And I loved my grandmother. We, we lived within a couple miles of her my, my entire growing up years. I saw my grandmother and talked to her every, every day of the week, not every day of the week, but every week, usually multiple times a week. And I remember it, I, I still remember it so vividly, even though it's yeah, a long time ago now. Um, it's sort of like if you've ever seen a movie where the, the main character f- freezes everything that's going on and all the action stops and everybody's kind of caught in mid, mid-action and, and the only person moving and aware of what's going on is the main person. And that, in that case, it was me and, and it, it felt like that. I looked around the room and I felt like I, everything was frozen and I looked at all these faces and I saw tears streaming down people's faces and I saw um, people that I barely even knew People that barely even knew my grandmother, or that's what I thought, weeping. And all of a sudden it dawned on me that I had not shed one tear. This was the first time that someone really, really close to me had passed away. I made it 18 years before I was at a funeral where someone who was dear, who was intimately involved in my life, had passed away. I know many of you that's not the case. It happened much earlier than that for you. And I remember having this conscious awareness that I should be crying right now. I, I've not wept for my grandmother. This is the normal response. And I am sitting here with this stone-cold facade, not consciously, and, and I can't cry. And that was the first time I remember thinking, something is off. I don't know what it is. And I didn't know how to deal with it, even interacting with the people. I didn't know how to to be alongside of them, even in their sorrow and in their their weeping. It was so uncomfortable. And my natural default is to turn to humor when I'm in uncomfortable emotions. And I still remember this poor lady my cousin's girlfriend's mom who had come and she knew my grandmother a little bit and she came up to me as she walked into the funeral home and she said, Jeremiah, I'm so, so sorry about your grandmother. Well, I'd had about a thousand people say that to me, it felt like, and I didn't know how to respond, but I was becoming more and more uncomfortable with it. And so she said, Jeremiah, I'm so, so sorry about your grandmother. I'm like, why? It wasn't your fault. I was trying to be funny. I was trying to deflect. I didn't know how to handle the situation. She did not laugh. She did not experience my weird sense of humor in that moment. 
it wasn't until the last few years that I began to piece things together. I began to trace things back to my relationship with my dad. And I want to preface what I'm about to say with this. I, I love my dad. My dad did a lot of amazing and great things for our family and made a tremendous amount of sacrifices for us as kids. I still remember with great affection the uh, baseball games in the backyard after a long, long day of pouring concrete, uh, which I can imagine the only thing he wanted to do was to collapse and fall asleep. Uh, I remember many, many great memories. But I also remember the shame. I also remember his own pain that he brought into our family. And I, I didn't understand this as a kid. It's only recently I've begun to understand this. My dad grew up with an alcoholic and a very emotionally distant father. I remember him telling me one time that the only time he could, his dad would ever talk to them is if they were in a, in a fishing boat. And so that he began to yearn for those, those times, as few and far between, uh, because at least his dad acknowledged his presence. His mom was very emotionally distant. She had lost both of her parents while she was a child. And he brought his own pain and his own hurt into our family. I believe my dad did the best he could. But his own response, when he was insecure, when he was met in situations with... Uh, Emotions that he couldn't process was to do the same thing I had learned to do, was to bring humor. And unfortunately, that humor was often very cutting humor. It was at the expense of usually one of us boys mocking, jabbing. He thought it was funny, but it cut. And you see, when you're young and you begin to experience pain... You, you learn ways to deflect those blows. You, you begin to build walls so that you can't keep getting cut. I still remember very distinctly times, as much as we enjoyed those backyard baseball games, if we weren't playing well, if we missed several pitches in a row, it was often met with, hey, do you want me to go get the neighbor girls and show you how to do it? Just jabs that he thought was funny, but begin to cut, begin to communicate, you're not enough. You're not good enough. You're not going to make it. Still remember as an awkward young teenager struggling with the sexual temptations and trying to understand what all of this meant. I still remember one time I was leafing through the lingerie section of a JCPenney catalog and my dad had walked past and saw over my shoulder what I was doing. And rather than engage me, rather than try to sit down and have a conversation, it was simply... And you pervert, and walking away. And I began to learn that it was not going to be safe for me to be vulnerable, for me to be real. And so I developed all kinds of defense mechanisms. I didn't like to have my heart hurt. I didn't like to feel pain. And so I discovered ways of insulating my heart from pain from hurt. And one of those ways that I developed was seclusion and solitude. Listen, if you're never around people, people can't hurt you. It's not rocket science. 
So I turned to reading and studying. And I even put a spiritual twist on it because I spent a lot of time studying the scriptures and learning about God. I went off to Bible college where my mind could grow big and fat with the scriptures and with theology. And I could talk about God and his word and what he was doing. I had found all this kind of spiritual language to make people think that I had this intimate walk with God when in reality it was just talk. I didn't, I, I didn't realize this at the time. I didn't have words to put to it. And I love theology, and there's nothing wrong with loving theology. But you see, there's, there's a problem when you can talk a lot about God without deeply loving God. You can explain what God's Word says about love and all the Greek words of mean love and various nuances, but not deeply feeling and experiencing his love for you. Self-protection was the name of the game for me. Added to that, I struggled with, with my weight throughout childhood, another layer of shame of something that I... I believed I needed to be embarrassed about. And when you, when you have this perception, this outlook on life, it can't not affect your relationship with God and how you view God. I began to view God in a similar way. I thought I could never do anything right or measure up. I knew, just like I knew that my dad loved me, I knew that God loved me, but there was always a distance. You always had to make sure he was in a good mood before you approached him. And you knew if you messed up, it was going to get thrown back in your face. Larry Crabb, described someone that I, I thought maybe he was writing about me when he said, years of prayer and Bible study had made him into everything he should be except a man of love. Throughout my 20s and early 30s, I had inklings of a thirst for something more, realizing just like I did that day in the funeral home that something was off, something was wrong that there was a wall up, and I, I had inklings of wanting that wall to come down. At Bible college, hearing for at least what felt like, I'm sure it wasn't because we had good pastors growing up, but hear, hearing grace talked about in ways that my mind had, could never fathom, that God longed to be with us, that God wanted to be with me, and that I didn't have to Come with pretenses. I didn't have to put on a suit and tie. I, I didn't have to earn his affection. And, and, and I, I had a taste for something more, but I, I still couldn't break through that wall. Reading authors like Brendan Manning's Ragamuffin Gospel, having teachers like a man by the name of George Walker talk about grace, even my own marriage and marrying a wonderful woman who was on the opposite scale as me as far as the emotional spectrum goes. Constantly pointing me to Jesus. 
Even though there was some growth, there were situations still that reinforced the lies that I had come to believe. I still remember when we were missionaries in China, and we had a, a conference. All, the, all, the, all of our team members came out to Thailand. We went to Thailand and had, had some meetings together, some team meetings. We could talk a bit, quite a bit more openly than we could in, in, the, in communist China. And uh, at that point, Elise and I were really struggling with uh, just some aches and hurts. Uh, we had missed so many things, uh, so many major life events uh, back here in the States, some marriages, some family members passing away. And then just a few days before this, uh, this conference, um, her grandfather had passed away, and we couldn't be there for it. And we were just aching. We were hurting. We were struggling and trying to figure out how to, how to live in this foreign country where we, we were really, really outsiders. There was the loneliness, and coupled with all of this loss, we were just a mess. And we had this couple that we, we had um, heard just kind of talk openly about some things, and we thought, uh, I think they're, they're safe people we can talk to and just share where we were, or what we're struggling with. They were leaders in the mission, so we set up an appointment to meet with them, and I, I, still, I, can, I can still see their faces as we just kind of <laughs> verbally vomited all over the place. This is what we're struggling with. This is how we're hurting. This is where we need some help. And they just looked at us with the most empty, blank expressions, like, I can't believe you just told us all this. And really just said, okay, uh, we're going to go now. And they, and they walked out. And we felt just so, we, we felt like we were naked there. We'd laid it all out, and, and it, it was, well, it just reinforced that it's not safe. It's not safe to be vulnerable. It's not safe to be real. It's not safe to be open. It reminded me I needed to put a few bricks back up on the wall. It had tumbled. It wasn't until sometime in 2012 or 2013 that I think my eyes began to open to just how, how desperate my plight was. I was the chaplain at Eagle Village at the time, over near uh, between um, Everett and Reed City. Um, a man, a pastor by the name of Kevin Butcher was coming to share with the teens for chapel that day. Chapel is later on in the afternoon. And as the chaplain, I was uh, tasked to kind of hang out with him and give him a tour of the campus and um, sort of be his handler until chapel time. And I didn't mind. I thought it would be nice to get to know him. I liked giving tours and showing people at different places around the, the campus. Um, but quickly I realized that, like, Kevin began asking me some penetrating questions. Some questions that began to make me feel really uncomfortable. Because they were questions about my heart. About my relationship with my dad. And you see, I had spent, at that point, 32, 33 years of wearing a mask. And I knew how, I knew how to dupe other religious people. I knew how to divert them. I knew how to say the things you were supposed to say in order to get them to think you were Okay. I had it down. I had my spiels. But nothing was working with Kevin. He could see through it all. And he began to get right to the heart of my struggles, my shame, my fear of failure, my fear of vulnerability. I started, my first reaction was anger. Like, you're here for the these, these teens who need to hear a great, encouraging, challenging talk. What are you doing here, man? What are you messing with me for? 
frustrated. But I was, at the same time, though, I, I was drawn to him. I was upset and drawn to him at the same time. Because I was, I was tasting something that I wanted more of. And I sensed that with every step, every time I answered a question honestly, every step closer to Kevin and to God that I got, there was, there was pain, but it was, it was sweet. And I couldn't explain it. I'll never forget one of his questions as we were getting closer to time for him to speak in the chapel. And he said, um, he said, I want you to go home today and ask your wife if she ever intentionally starts an argument just at random just to see if there's some kind of a spark of life to see if you're alive. And I said, that's stupid. My wife would never, ever do something like that. That's dumb. He's like, just go home and ask her. We said goodbye. went home that night, and I, the kids were all in bed. And I'm like, hey, honey, I, I got this kind of dumb question. This idiot came and spoke at chapel today. and He said, he said to ask you, like, <laughs> so dumb. Do you ever, do you ever like, try to start fights just to see if, like, I've got some emotion in me, like, that I'm not a robot? Do you ever, I mean, I know you don't, but I'm asking you. She's like, of course I do. I'm like, what? She's like, you just, she said, you can just go through life so methodically, and so I just sometimes want to see if your heart's alive. I just want to see if there's spark of life. That was a revelation to me. I started emailing Kevin a little bit. I came here as your pastor, and uh, I, I still was beginning to take these first steps on this journey to find my heart, but it only just begun. In October of 2016, I met Mike and Pam Dittman. Elise and I had been down at a conference, and Mike is, was the new director of national ministries here for our denomination. We sat at he and his wife's table, and within a few minutes, I could, say, I could tell, this is another Kevin. I can't fool this guy. I can't put up the walls. And he looked at me, and he said, he found out we were from Michigan. He lives in Commerce Township. He said, you're coming over to my house. We're going to talk more. I said, okay. In December, in fact, I found in my uh, journal, December 14th, 2016, I had a life-changing conversation with Mike, and he just began to ask me questions about my dad and about uh, my growing up and just being able to be real and just begin to see all this, all this shame that I'd carried, all, this, this, all these defenses that I'd put up to insulate myself from pain, from he- feeling hurt, from feeling any emotion, really. And uh, that day was really a, a breakthrough day. I'm going to use the word journey because I definitely haven't arrived Sitting down that day with Mike, the light bulbs began to go on. I'd never seen a clear connection between my relationship with my dad and being emotionally closed off. Proverbs tells us that the heart is the source of life, that we're to guard it. Jesus told us to love the Lord your God with all of your soul and all of your strength and your mind and your heart. I had the mind part down. I had never known 
truly what it meant to love God with your heart. This is an ongoing challenge for me to talk about my heart, my relationship with my dad. My heart muscle is still weak. Almost a decade into this journey, I have still so far to go. Even coming to you last fall and sharing our need for a sabbatical, I can't tell you how hard that was. To say, not okay. The old feelings of shame reared their ugly head. I could hear those voices. I knew it. You're weak. You're a wimp. A good pastor wouldn't struggle like this. Stepping into deeply emotional situations rather than running away to solitude or emotionally shutting down is still a great challenge for me. I've often found it much easier to stand up here and preach a sermon than to talk to my family about what Jesus means to me, what he's doing in my heart or what I'm struggling with. I still retreat into solitude far too often. I don't know what I would do without my extremely gracious and patient wife who has continued to walk this journey with me. But as we learn to tell our stories and learn to enter into each other's stories, it's going to take us being honest and vulnerable. I know what it's like to get burned when you take the mask off. I know what it's like to want to feel never going to do that again. It wasn't worth it. Part of living in fellowship with the body of Christ is being willing to take the mask off and being willing to experience hurt and pain and to choose and choose again that you're going to lean into it rather than rebuild the walls and hide. I share these things with you this morning because I know every single person in this room has a story of their own and I know each and every one of us has a part of our story that we'd rather keep the walls around. I know each and every one of us carries hurts and pain and shame. And all of us have a part, maybe even the majority part, that we're tempted to hide from public view. The people in the pew knew this about me. I could never show my face again. But that's, that's not church. That's not the church. That's not the body of Christ. That's not fellowship. We're called to bear one another's burdens. And if we are content with simply, ah, oh, yeah, I had a hard week. If that's, that's the level of vulnerability that you're willing to go, you're never going to have intimate fellowship with another brother or sister. Here's the truth. If we're not able to be vulnerable with God's people, there is a very good chance, and I can speak from experience here, there's a very good chance we're not being vulnerable with God. If I constantly feel the need to polish up and put on a mask with my brothers and sisters, there's a very good chance I'm doing the exact same thing with God. I want to tell you this morning, my brothers and sisters, God longs for my heart. God longs for your heart. Not the whitewashed, 
mask-on version of you, but the real you, warts and all. And God longs for us to enter into genuine fellowship with one another and to share our hearts with one another. I know that this doesn't happen overnight. I've been working on this 10 years, and I, I feel like sometimes I haven't learned a thing. This is a journey. But it's a journey worth going on. The only reason that any of this is possible is because of Jesus. You see, that shame that I carried, that feeling of not measuring up with my dad, the fear of failure. You see, Jesus took all of these things upon himself at the cross. Jesus took all of my sin all of my shame, my fear, my worries. He took those things and he died. But he didn't just die, he rose again so that we can have victory. When Jesus looks at us and he says, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's not just looking for us to throw our stuff in prayer on him. He does want us to pray. But notice, he's not asking for our stuff. He says, you come to me. I long for you. I want you. Not just your burdens. I'm calling you. And to come to God as we are unafraid, open, vulnerable. He can handle it. And what's, what's amazing is that if you get a church full of people who believe this about their relationship with God, you, you begin to treat each other the same way. And we begin to discover that it's safe to be open, it's safe to be real with one another. That's genuine fellowship, and that's what we're going to talk about next time. This morning, we have a chance to celebrate communion together. And that word is a beautiful picture of what God has called us to do. He's called us to commune with Him. Not to come to Him with what you think He wants to hear this morning, with the religious-sounding phrases, but you communing with God, you fellowshipping wide open before Him. The bread picturing His body that was broken for us. The juice here representing His blood that was shed for us. And the words of our Savior, do this in remembrance of me. We're going to have just a, a time of, of quiet right now. And I just want to encourage you to, if this is a, a journey that's new for you, just start right now with where you are in talking to God. Open up your heart before Him. In just a moment, then we'll, we'll pray one more time and our worship team will come up and, and lead us. And as, uh, as you feel led, come up. And if you're a follower of Christ, we want to invite you to join us in this. And um, invite you to, 
partake of communion. The, the offering plates are here if you feel led to give to our benevolence offering. We are tradition to do that here on the first Sunday of every month. Just take a moment and just let yourself be real with God. Let's pray. Father, for some of us, even just saying that word Father brings all kind of baggage to the forefront. But you are the good heavenly Father, the true Father that we don't need to worry about whether you're in a good mood, whether we have to come with the right words and the right phrases to impress you. We can just come. The reason we can come is because of Jesus Christ. He has made the way. God, we worship you. Jesus, we thank you for coming and making the way to the Father. God, thank you that you're a perfect father. Even the best earthly fathers, we, get it, we all get it wrong. We all mess it up sometimes. For those who have fathers who have caused them deep wounds and pain and hurt, Lord God, give us eyes to see that you, what your word teaches us about the good, one true father. And I, I pray, God, that this morning we could come to you and, and worship as we think about what, what Jesus has done to make a way to the Father. His body broken, his blood shed, so that we can come before you in complete openness and freedom, knowing you will never cast us out, knowing that we're always welcome to your table joy that is. Please come this morning.
if our, uh, our elders who are present might come on up and, and what we're just going to do as we, as we close in prayer here and um, dismiss, if, if you'd like some prayer, um, I want to just invite you to come on up and, and join one of our elders in, in a time of prayer. Whatever God might be doing in your heart or laid upon your heart, it could be anything. I want to just invite you to pray if you feel led. God, we thank you that you don't give up on us we thank you, thank you that you're a God who pursues our hearts. You don't just want our outward religious observance. You don't just want people with a bunch of Bible knowledge, but you, you long for our hearts. We pray, God, that you would just do a renovation in our spirits to be able to be open and real with you, to be vulnerable with one another as we seek to, to walk with each other the highs and lows of life. And may the God who did not hold back even his very own son but handed him over for us all, may he provide you with every good thing that you need in order to do his will and do in you what pleases him. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. May God bless you.